Tiana is going to be joining us um, to, to share scripture. How about a round of applause to welcome Tiana? Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed, from Galilee to Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him, because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those who he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, son of, of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaan and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thank you, Tiana, for reading our scripture this morning. That was Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. And uh, well, good morning, Quest. Uh, How are y'all doing today? My name is Jeremy Shelley. I'm the youth pastor and uh, I'm able to, to share with you this morning. And, and this text is interesting. It, it shows us a lot of movement. And there's two kinds of movement that I want us to think about this morning. The first begins with this idea uh, of the crowds coming to Jesus and then pressing him and him retreating back to the Sea of Galilee uh, and then actually moving up into a mountain so that he can name his disciples and then actually sending his disciples out. And uh, I love, I love the, the names that he gives to his disciples here. I mean, wouldn't it be so cool for Jesus to give you a nickname, Son of Thunder? I mean, how cool is that, really? Like, ah, oh, I am a Son of Thunder! Um, maybe it's just me, I don't know, but uh, I would love it. Um, it's like a superhero or something. Well, let me, let me pray for us as we begin um, this morning. Well, come, Holy Spirit. Come and speak to our hearts Uh, transform us. Let us hear this text and let it uh, change us. Lord, let us understand uh, just how powerful it is when you name us, Lord. Be with us, Jesus. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, I've long struggled with nicknames. Uh, Names are important, and uh, we often don't give them the credit that they deserve. They have the power to shape us into the thing that we think they're describing. Uh, And while it may not seem critical or crucial uh, to understand what Jesus is doing, let me tell you, it is. It's, It's very powerful. In fact, what this story teaches us is how and why Jesus transforms us, how and why he shapes us, how and why he changes us to be the creatures, the people that he wants us to be. Now we're going to focus on verses 14 and 15 today, and and the English translations, they they mask the language here a little bit, and uh, and so I'm actually choosing to use the English uh, standard version because I think it gives us a clear understanding of what's going on here. 
See, in verse 14, it says that he designated them. In most translations here, it says he um, also named them apostles. And, um, and we're going to understand what this word name truly means. The point is, um, in this whole text, is that Jesus is naming, that he's renaming. And in ancient times, a name was very important. Your name was meant to convey who you were. And, and every time something changed in your life, something significant happened, you were given a new name. And a person who had multiple names was considered powerful and interesting and multidimensional. And, and then there was also this, uh, this name that every person had that they uh, didn't share with anyone else. It was the name that described them the very best. But they wouldn't give out that name to just anybody because if a person knew your name, then they had power over you. They had authority over you. Now, I know what you're saying. Okay, yeah, Jeremy, we know this, but you know that was back then. Those people were superstitious. Names really aren't that powerful anymore. Uh, really? Think about it for a minute. How many thousands, possibly even millions of dollars do companies spend in order to name a product, to get the exact right branding for something that they want to send? I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to think they hire people just to name something correctly, right? Um, I remember when I was uh, much younger how a name that was given to me by a bunch of bullies severely impacted how I viewed myself. I, it was in, I was in fifth grade, I was 10 years old, and, and I had just made the switch from a bull haircut to like this new style do, and I thought I was like growing up, you know, it's like, oh, I'm getting old, I can, I'm going to style my hair, but I wasn't ready for the emotional impact of what it meant to grow up, because... Um, <laughs> This is what I used to do. So uh, my hairstylist cut it in this really cool way, and then I would slick it back. I'd get it really wet, and then I'd slick it back, and I would spray it with Aquanet so that it stayed there um, like forever. And uh, and I looked kind of like a '50s greaser, and I loved it. I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Uh, but then one day after recess, I came back into class, and there, drawn up on uh, the chalkboard of our history class, was this oil derrick. And um, underneath the oil derrick was uh, my nickname, flanked by my actual name. So it read, Jeremy Spindletop Shelley. Now, I didn't know what that meant. You know, I had no idea really what it was. But then as the day went on, I realized, I don't think I like this name. You know, they're calling me something that I don't really like. And, and um, over the next few weeks, my popularity grew among all the students. And, and, and um, it was for all the wrong reasons. The way I remember it is that the entire fifth grade saved two people, my good friends, were all calling me Spindletop. And as the weeks went by, that name kind of changed and it became Greaser and Greaseball and, and everyone was just calling me all of these names and it was, <clears throat> it was really painful. And then it got so bad that there were some kids from other grades, fourth grade, uh, that began to recognize me as Greaseball and Spindletop and Greaser. And I was just over it. I was done with it. Um, and, and what I realized is that this new name that this bully had given me was beginning to control me. It was, it was becoming my identity, and I didn't like it. Who wants to be controlled by someone else? And, and even more than that, a bully, someone who doesn't like us. Do you know what that feels like? Have you ever felt like that when someone has control over you? It, it's suffocating. 
It's troubling, and at the most sinister, a name can determine even the missteps of people. I mean, have you ever seen that person who's living up to their name? You know, sometimes this can be a good thing, but most often it's, it's pretty bad. Either way, there is power when we give someone or something a name. You know, we see this all the way back at the very beginning of time. In Genesis, um, we see God naming things. Naming has a, a shaping power, but when human beings name something, uh, there's limited power. It's still powerful, but it's limited. For instance, have you ever met someone who has an ironic name? You know, like their parents, they, when, they, when they were born, their son or their daughter was born, they're like, oh, we're going to name him strong or beautiful or whatever, and then you, they grow up and they're like, you see them and you think, man, that is a weak Samson or that is a stupid Solomon, or that is an ugly Bella. Their parents were way off, you know. But with God, it's different. In Genesis, you don't see God thinking something into existence. No, he names it and then it's created. You know, he called it sky and the sky existed. He called it light. He called it day. He called it night. He named it and then it was. It was there. You see, when, when God names something, he creates it. And, and this is very different than human beings because when human beings name something, they merely describe it. But when God names something, he determines what it is. And so, when Jesus names something, like here in Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, what does he do? When Jesus names, what happens? Well, he's God, so of course, he too determines what that is going to be. Now, in most English translations, like I said, verses 14 and 15, what's happening is is really masked. But here we have, um, and he appointed, that word is confusing, okay? He appointed 12, whom he also, and usually it says designated there in most um, other translations, and he also named. Uh, This word appointed is very interesting. It's the same root word that we get for poem or for creation or workmanship, so, so what this is saying is that, and Jesus created a workmanship of the twelve. That's pretty cool. And, and, and he named them apostles. So he created them to be apostles. Jesus' naming has that power. Jesus has the divine ability to call into being something out of nothing. He can create something from nothing. So, who are you? What is your identity? Every person in this room, all of us, me included, have some paradigm through which we derive our identity and our value. Why? Because we can't live by just being part of the nameless, faceless mob or the crowd. We want to be unique we, we want to have some distinct value, right? Now, science tells us that, that we're just another wave crashing on the shores, a dewdrop going back into the ocean, and, um, and our unique personality, our unique value, our distinct um, nature, it, it's going to be gone eventually. But every one of us, every one of us needs our unique sense of self, a sense that there is that distinct value about us. 
So the question I have for you is, is how are you getting it? I mean, we've all got to have it, right? In some cultures, um, people get their distinct value, their identity um, from their family. Uh, my son's named after his grandfathers, George Lofton Shelley and uh, Theron David Reddish. My son's name is Lofton David. And, and this is what cultures will do. They'll, they'll give a name like Eric's son or Peter's son or Isaac's son, son of Peter, son of Eric, son of Isaac, right? That's, that's where they get their identities in those cultures. There, there's other cultures where they use... Um, you know, what the, what the person does for a job to give them a name. That's where we get Baker and Fisher and Smith. My mom's maiden name is Shirado. And uh, Shirado is a Hungarian word for professional mourner. So what her family did was they were hired, you know, to go to funerals. If, if you want a lot of people to cry for your dad at his funeral, hire the Shiratos. They'll come in and weep for you. I mean, like, that's so strange. Um, it's true, though. The point, though, this is, this, is, this is interesting. The point here is that whatever names you, whatever it is that gives you identity, that thing owns you, right? Whatever names you, owns you. And, and you may say, well, I don't get my identity from my family. I don't get my identity from my job. I, I work with the homeless. I, I'm an artist. I'm a dancer. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter really where you derive your identity from. Still, the truth is whatever names you, owns you. Here's what I mean. An example from Luke chapter 16. This is uh, a famous parable about Lazarus and the rich man. I'm sure most of you know this, um, and I'm not going to go too deep into the parable. I just want to focus on the names here for a minute. The parable goes this way. Uh, Lazarus is poor, and obviously the rich man is rich, and Lazarus dies, and he goes where? He goes to heaven to sit at Abraham's side, and and then the rich man dies, and, and where does he go? He goes to hell. So commentators over the years have wondered, why in the world does Lazarus have a proper name and the rich man doesn't? Because throughout the scripture, whenever we read parables or stories, you know, it's usually all or none. Everyone has a proper name or no one does. Take the, the story of the prodigal son for a minute. Uh, you have a father, you have a younger son of the prodigal, and you have the older Everyone has no name there. They're just kind of, you know, people, their personalities, right? Um, but in this story of Lazarus and the rich man, proper name, no proper name. And here's, here's why I think it is. It's because the, the rich man got his identity from what? From his wealth. He says, I have value because I have money. My distinct uh, identity has to do with my wealth, how much I've accrued, how much I've gained, how much I have. But when he dies, guess what? He doesn't have any money anymore, and therefore he doesn't have any identity anymore. And the you that created the rich man is no longer you, it's nothing. He has no identity in death because his wealth couldn't go with him. But Lazarus, he was given a proper name right? He had an identity even beyond death. See, we have a name that's given to us, a name that describes who we are. And people, people labor over names all the time. And, and sometimes I don't think they spend enough time thinking about um, all the implications of a name. And, and um, as a youth pastor, I'm very careful what nicknames I give to students. And, and I'm usually pretty reluctant to because, you know, I, I don't want to name a student for some negative, you know, characteristic or quality. Like, I'm going to call a student fatty, you know, or something like I've only done that once. Um, just kidding. I've never done that. 
not here, but um, well, <laughs> uh, you, know, you know, I'm not going to call them butterfingers like, oh, you're playing sprawl ball and you can't catch it. No, I'm not going to do that because I don't want that negative characteristic to be what defines them in the future because names are that important, even nicknames. Now, I remember the day that I lost um, my nickname, Spindletop. Uh, I was in health class and we had a substitute teacher that day, which meant that instead of really doing anything productive in class, all we were going to do is stand up in front and read out of the health book. And I don't know who had the brilliant idea to let fifth graders read out of a health book in front of class. I mean, seriously, you're asking for trouble when you do that. And let me tell you, this substitute got the trouble, but it wasn't because of what we were reading in the book. See, what happened was, when it was my turn to read, I stood up out of my seat and I began walking forward to the front of the class, and that bully, the second I stood up, he called out my nickname, Spindletop. And then one by one, the entire class erupted in insults pointed right at me. Greaser, greaseball. Some of them I didn't even understand. They didn't even make sense. Shelly belly, jelly bean. What? That's not even my hair. We're making fun of my hair here. Not, I'm not fat. But here's what happened. I stood up at the front of that class. I was hurt. I was really hurt. I mean, can you imagine like 20-something kids all screaming out insults at you? And uh, I pointed at the bully. I found him and I pointed at him and I issued him a challenge. I said, 3 p.m. at the bike racks, I'm going to kick your butt. I didn't say that, but I'm going to kick your keister, Ross would say. Um, <laughs> you know, but it, it's interesting because it still wasn't even until a decade later that I actually got over just the pain that came from that moment in fifth grade, from that name that was given to me. And it was the identity, it, it hung around for a long time. And, and for me, thankfully, it, it was Jesus who finally restored me by helping me to understand the name that he gave me. See, names become a description of who we are. They create our identity. And when we allow God to name us, he actually determines our identity. How cool is that? He creates us. He recreates us. See, identity is crucial. And, and one of the first things that I noticed about this text in Mark, and, and I want to pay attention just to the movement. There's two kinds of movement that are happening here. There's one, there's the physical movement, and then, then there's this other movement that happens with identity. But it begins with this physical movement. Um, it, it's, it begins with these crowds pressing into Jesus. And, and Jesus is essentially getting backed up to the Sea of Galilee, almost to the point where he's going to go into the lake, you know, or the sea, and, and, and potentially drown. Of course, he can walk on the water, so he's not worried about that but um, Jesus then withdraws even further into the mountains where he then calls the 12 and brings them to them see this movement he, he, he goes up to the mountain he calls the 12 brings them to them and then from there he sends them out that's this full movement that we have and, and, and as more people heard about Jesus's ability to heal them more and more they wanted to be near him so they crowded up to him and this is really about this other movement. It's a transition. It's from one identity to the next. See, these men and women, they suffer from some kind of malady, some form of disease. And when a person suffers with something like that, it becomes their identity. 
In ancient times, if you were sick, you weren't allowed to be around other people. You just weren't allowed, and, and that's exactly why these people wanted to be near Jesus. They wanted a new identity. They didn't want to be sick anymore. They wanted to be restored back to their communities, back to their families, back to their friends, back to their jobs, and they knew that Jesus could do that for them, and they didn't care who they had to touch to get there. It didn't matter to them because they knew, well, Jesus can heal those people too. If I touch them and, and if I'm contagious, who cares? Jesus will heal those people just as much. I mean, who knows how long some of them had been known as a person with leprosy or a person who couldn't stop bleeding. I mean, who, who wouldn't want to have a new and better identity after being healed? It's a new life for them. Another chance to be someone that they wanted to be. And it's, a, it's an interesting characteristic of us that we want to have an identity. And we certainly don't want to be labeled by someone else who gives us that identity based on our flaws, by any sickness or disease. We want to be known for what we understand is great in our lives, right? We want people to know us. We want our identity to be about the gifts that God has given us, our talents, our strengths, you know, this, this is something that we all want, and, and this is no different from the people who were gathering around Jesus. They wanted a new identity that had nothing to do with their sickness. So we have these people who were following Jesus. They wanted to be clean. They wanted to be healthy. They wanted a fresh new start, a new identity. By the way, uh, when this text says that Jesus healed many, um, that's a Jewish colloquialism. It doesn't mean that some of the people that came to Jesus didn't get healed. Uh, when, when the author wrote this, when Mark wrote this, um, he was writing it uh, in a way that, that Jews would understand when Jesus healed many, he was healing everybody. It's a, it's a way of saying he healed everyone that came to him. It's just how they would understand it. I just want you to be clear. Jesus healed every person that came to him to be healed. And then when some of these people came the unclean spirits that inhabited them, causing their calamity, and you can read unclean spirits as demons, they recognized the identity of Jesus. It's kind of cool, right? I mean, we're talking about Jesus changing identity, and here we have those unclean spirits recognizing who he was, what his authority was, what his personhood was, that he was the Son of God. In verse 15 when Jesus names the apostles, he gives them the ability to cast out demons just as he was doing right before. This is, this is what Jesus is doing because when the spirits are in these people, they have power over them and they give them their identity. So Jesus says, enough. Your identity is not in this spirit or your sickness but instead, it's in how I am going to restore you, how I'm going to recreate you. See, when Jesus names, remember, he recreates. He makes something from nothing. This is the point of this story. So now there's this second movement in the text. First, we have people wanting a new identity from the man who could heal them, and then these unclean spirits coming out and bowing before the Son of God. And... Um, and, uh, and then Jesus quiets them. They're calling out, you know, you are the Son of God, and, and Jesus quiets them. Why? Why? Because Jesus knows that if word gets out from all of the people that are following him, that, that his identity 
uh, is the king of the Jews, the son of God, then the Roman government will begin to get a little bit worried. And so, um, who is this man that's the king of the Jews, the son of God? Who, who, and Jesus, Jesus wasn't ready for that kind of attention. He's like, I, I'm not ready for that. So what he does is he retreats to the mountains, like any good revolutionary would do. He goes and, and, um, and he starts to build his revolutionary plot. It's a, it's a revolution, though, that no one is expecting. See, next Sunday... Uh, is Palm Sunday, and uh, we're going to celebrate, essentially, the, the beginning of Jesus' revolution, right? It's when he rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and all the people were laying down palm branches in front of him, saying, you are going to be the new ruler of Israel, you are going to be the king of Israel, and you're going to overthrow uh, the, the Romans, and, and, but Jesus is like, I've got something different in mind, something bigger, something better, just Wait. See, my revolution is far more significant than simply restoring Israel to power. So as Jesus is up in his mountain, he calls the twelve. This is really cool. And he gives them special status and position around them. Now, this isn't coincidental. What Jesus is doing, everyone understands. He's doing it without telling people. People recognize, okay, twelve disciples around him Jesus is restoring Israel. But what Jesus wants to say is, this isn't just a healing mission. And it's even more than just a spiritual renewal. This is the restoration. Restoration at every level. Physical, spiritual, social, political. I come to give identity in every area of your lives. New identity. The right identity. And this is how he does it. See, Jesus has the power, because he's God, to create. And when Jesus appoints uh, the disciples as apostles, when he names them, when he designates them, what he's actually doing is he's giving them, he's creating in them the ability to do that which he's calling them. He's creating in them uh, the ability to be apostles, to go out, to preach, to teach, to cast out demons, and ultimately to establish his church. He's going to restore the world on the backs of these 12 men. Well, not all of these 12. He knows one of them's going to betray him. But that's the point, right? He's going to restore the world through these people. And when he calls them apostles, when he names them apostles, he determines that they are able to do it. It doesn't matter who they were before they were called up to the mountain. It didn't matter what they believed about themselves before this particular situation. It didn't matter what anyone else said about them before this. When Jesus named them, when he appointed them as apostles, he determined their identity as apostles. This is what this story is all about. If we look back to Jesus healing the crowds that were following them, he gave them a new identity. He recreated them as a masterpiece. This is what Jesus was doing. Jesus came to bring restoration, to recreate, to give us a new identity. And after he names the disciples apostles, he then gives them new names. Simon, who he called Peter, which means rock. Jesus gives out nicknames. It's like a renaming process. It's really cool. Now, was Peter the most solid disciple? Was he really deserving of this name, Rock? 
Well, yeah, he was deserving of it because Jesus called him rock. But did Peter understand what his name truly was? No. Peter didn't get it. He didn't know exactly what it meant to be called rock. In fact, what did he do? He denied Jesus three times. (laughs) He wasn't really a rock yet. It took him a while. And Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, and Peter is a really interesting um, character because it helps us to realize a, a central issue. And that is, how do we get and how do we know what our name and identity is in Christ? So Peter was given a new name, Rock. You are to be called Peter, upon which I'm going to build my church. But he didn't get it completely. It took him a long time. So getting a new name in Jesus, truthfully, is the easy part. Jesus gives it to us, but only when we do what? We have to come to him first, just as the disciples came to him, and then he gave them a new name. We have to come to him. We have to surrender our lives to him. We have to bow at his feet and say, I give you authority over me, and Jesus will give us a new name. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you want a new name, because you're tired of your identity being in something that's going to let you down, that constantly is, is just uh, unstable and, and messed up. If you say, I want something that's going to be stable, that's going to be real, that's going to be powerful in my life, then the first thing you need to do is say, I'm going to surrender to Jesus. That's giving your life to Christ. Saying, I accept you, Jesus, and he will give you a new name. But even then, just like Peter Sometimes it's really hard for us to understand what that name is. It took Peter his entire life to fully live into that name, Rock. The rock upon which Jesus was going to build his church. His entire life. But what happened? After Jesus left the earth and he ascended into heaven and we were given the Holy Spirit, Peter went out and he preached to the people. He, he, he preached one of the best sermons ever. Like 3,000 people came to Christ when he told everyone about him and fire descended on these heads and it was cool. Jesus, or Peter was the one whom the, the church of Jesus was established on. He began to live out the name that Jesus had given to him. But it took him a while and it does for us. So how do we do it? How do we begin to understand what our name is in Jesus? See, because I don't think many of us Realize the full power that Jesus has in his creation. A lot of times we hold on to some kind of faulty identity or something outside of the truth of, truth of God. We let our identity continue even in Christ Jesus. We let our identity continue to be determined by someone or something else. Think about it. How many of you as Christians still base your identity on how much money you make or, or on who your family is or, or on how you look. Or, or maybe it's on a degree from a particular university that you have that you hang on the wall. You know, all of this, for better or for worse, whatever, you know, our, our identity can be wrapped up in so many things, but the problem is that when we trust in something other than Jesus, than the name that he gives us, then our identity is faulty. It's unstable because those things will let us down. I mean, what happens tomorrow if you lose all of your money? You're like the rich man, right? You've got no identity left. 
Or, or, or if you can no longer perform at your job? What, what happens if your beauty is stripped from you by some outrageous car accident? Or, or if you lose your family to divorce or death? Think, think about athletes for a minute. It's going to be a common problem for them because they tend to derive their identity on how they perform on the court or the gridiron, right? And they may be very powerful characters out there, but what happens when they, they blow out a knee or they hurt their back and they can no longer perform? So often we see them just losing identity and it's hard for them to understand who they're going to be in another context. Don't let that be you. See, your identity is not Chase Bank. Your identity is not limited brands. Your identity is not the Eagles or the Warriors or the Warhawks or the Buckeyes or the Bears or the Wildcats. Your identity is not beauty queen. Your identity is not theologian. Your identity is not mother of two or husband and father. Your, your identity is not rich or poor, sick or healthy. All those things can change and let you down. So don't you want your identity to be in something that's solid? When we choose to submit to the power and the restoration of Christ and we allow him to name us, then our identity is in he who never changes. If he says that you're beautiful, and he will, even if you don't believe it, it is true because he named you that way and he can't be wrong. If, if Jesus says uh, that you are lovely or that you're strong or you're wise, then it's true because Jesus has the power to name you that way. So, how then do we understand what our name is? Uh, I think it's really wrapped up here in verses 14 and 15. Let's look at those again. And he appointed 12, whom they also named apostles, so that he might so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. If you want radical individuality, then this is how you receive that new name that comes from Jesus. And it's not something that comes easily and that you understand it immediately. It's, it's, it's really a process. Remember Peter. It took him his entire life to understand that he was going to be the one that um, Jesus' church was built on, right? It's a process. It takes a long time. So let's begin with this idea of being with Jesus. This is um, really the language of intimacy. Jesus is saying, I want you apostles to be with me all the time. Not just Monday, Wednesday, Friday from 9 to 11 or on the weekends at church uh, from 11 till 1230. No, I want you to be with me so that you can hear all the things that I say, so that you can see all the things that I do, so that you can know who I truly am. It's, it's about friends being in deep, deep relationship. You see, it's only with others around us in community that we'll see who we truly are. When the people around us tell us, this is what I see in you. This is, this is how God has gifted you. It's about being in relationship, life on a life relationship. And the Bible holds out a promise of a remarkable experience of love, of deep, profound love. And, and if you're never with Jesus like that, then I don't know how you can get your identity. It's by living with him in the scripture, in prayer, in worship, in true 
relationship and community. I mean, have you ever been in one of those moments where you've had that just deep, profound encounter with Jesus? Maybe it was in a worship service, but you felt him all around you, and you knew it was Christ there with you, and and that feeling was so profound, so real, so tangible that it almost hurt. You were like, I need to get, I I feel uncomfortable here. And usually that, that discomfort comes from like the Holy Spirit convicting something in you, but that moment, that being with Jesus, that encounter that you're having, that's what Jesus is talking about. Be with me. Encounter me. These are the ways to do it. See, those moments are just a glimpse of what it really means to be with Jesus. And over time, in those encounters, we understand, we begin to understand who we are. The other part of this process is about being sent. It's about serving. Jesus names the apostles, and then he sends them out to do two things, to to preach the gospel and to cast out demons. Jesus is creating these 12 apostles so that they will go out into the world and liberate people to serve everyone in word and in deed. And, And this is what every follower of Jesus is called to do because Jesus said that if you want to find yourself, you have to first lose yourself, Mark 8, 35. In other words, if you try to find yourself directly, if you just keep looking in at yourself, like, oh, let me see who I am. and No, you're not going to find yourself. You need to go out and serve. And I know that we all have very busy lives. We've got families, we've got jobs, we've got all kinds of responsibilities. And the truth is, maybe we can only cram in this time of coming to church and being with Jesus on Sunday mornings. But here's the reality. If you're not ready to serve, if you're not ready to commit, if you're not ready to lay down your life for someone else so that they can understand what it means to also know uh, uh, what their name is in Jesus, if you're not willing to be an usher, if you're not willing to serve in the children's ministry, if you're not willing to serve in youth ministry or some other place or or to, to go out and help the poor and the homeless, if you're not willing to do that, then I don't know how you're gonna find out who you really are because in serving... In doing those things, we discover what gifts we have in Jesus, what he has given us. That's our name. That's our identity. But it's only when we serve that we realize those things. This is what Jesus came here to do. He came to recreate, to restore, to rename, to give us an identity in him. And when we're with him, when we serve, we discover who we are. And it can't change because God doesn't change. God gave us that name. Now, you can call me fat or you can um, call me all kinds of names, and it won't matter because my identity is in Jesus Christ. I'm learning what that means. And when all the stuff around me starts to fall apart, if I get into an accident and I can't you know, run anymore, or if I lose all my money, that doesn't matter. That's not where my identity is. It's in Jesus Christ. It's unshakable. It's completely stable. It won't change because God doesn't change. He is the one who gives us our identity. That's what I want for you, church, to discover your identity in Jesus Christ. Let him rename you. Let him give you your identity. Let me pray for us. Well, Jesus, we thank you for your power, for your words, for your deeds, for your name, the name that you give to us. I pray that we would 
learn what it means to be named by you. That we would learn what it means to be recreated by you. That we wouldn't trust in what the world says about us. We wouldn't trust in the things that we can build up, the things that we can do. But Lord, just what you say about us, our name, our identity that you give us. Lord Jesus, let us rest in that, in the unshakable truth of who you call us and what you call us to be. We love you, Lord Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.